It's episode 89 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Derek Smith. Dive in the Podcast is a weekly all-about-diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, free diver, or tech diver, Dive In has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews, and guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick. I'm Justin, and on Gearing Up this week, we'll talk about dry suit upgrades for winter. I'm Amit, and on Side Mount, we're going to talk about butts, and together, we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we get started today, we'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thanks for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. What did you guys think about last week's episode with Demise Ferugia? Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool, man, to be able to sit back and talk to another uh, passionate side mount diver. I guess you'd bet you'd never guess that I would say that overall, but uh, <laughs> yeah, quite enjoyed that. And, <laughs> and you know, the fact that he like the, his level of attention to detail in terms of the way he approaches his diving and uh, you know how he looks at equipment and all the rest of this. So I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it's fun to take a trip to Malta as well. So it's always, uh, so probably I think I've said this before. One of my favorite parts about doing this show is kind of going around the world. Yeah, yep. and I can say I've seen Malta, like in terms of, you know, there's always been like the odd wreck here or there that you see that shows up in in most of their their diving pictures. But it was kind of cool to see how he connected the World War II wrecks and the access to some of these more obscure, uh, obviously less uh, visited sites like, you know, like the JUs and, and the bombers and what have you that uh, was really kind of neat as well. So, yeah, overall mm-hmm. very cool and certainly along with our other guests that we've visited who uh, who frequent Malta, makes me want to swing by there at some point for some of that awesome diving. Yeah, most definitely. And just uh, basically repeating what you guys said was uh, was fun. And uh, yeah, it makes me, makes me want to get out there and go to Malta. And if I can't, next best thing is listening to this podcast and hearing these passionate divers talk about their local, their local diving scenes. So speaking about people talking about diving, Admit uh, you had a shout out this week. Yeah, I uh, wanted to send a shout out to our episode eighty six guest uh, Zandy from one of our fans, Jeff. So I uh, got a message from Jeff a few days ago, and he had mentioned that he quite enjoyed that show in particular. Uh, he said he wanted to pass along that he felt that he could listen to Zandy speak forever. So uh, Zandy, if you're listening, thanks for bringing the infectious energy to the show uh, and to our listeners. And th- and Jeff, of course. Uh, thanks for sharing the feedback and letting us know that, in fact, it's Zandy and not us that you wanted to listen to. So I appreciate, I appreciate that, I think. So, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, rightly so. <laughs> I agreed. I agreed. Yeah. I, just, uh, I re-listened to that episode uh, yesterday, actually, uh, as I was driving uh, to and from work. It was definitely a good episode and great interview. It's funny because you would think editing a podcast that you really get a thorough listen of it. No, you're just looking for issues mm-hmm. and looking for mistakes and you're listening, but you know, you're looking for problems. So you don't really take it in. It's not until I actually get to listen to it. And usually in my car is where I get to listen to the, the podcast that you really like it to take it all in. And uh, yeah, it was a great episode. And tonight is going to be another great episode. Uh, this week we're speaking to Derek Smith. Dr. Derek Smith is a Marine biologist, a multi-agency instructor, scientific diver whose research interests include 
ecological and cultural aspects of submerged structures. Derek is the president of the American Association of Underwater Sciences and a member of the World Scientific Diving Training Council. Welcome to the podcast, Derek. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. How are you, how are you doing today? Uh, it's been a, it's been a busy, day, a busy day today. You know, we've got, uh, American Thanksgiving, uh, tomorrow. And so there's, you know, a lot of lead up to this. And even though we're, we're right. pretty lucky this year mm-hmm. and we've got no family members coming to visit. Uh, so we have a pretty quiet <laughs> myself and, and the family and the dogs, I uh, get to have kind of our own little uh, holiday here uh, for a couple of days. It's still the lead up to that has been uh, a bit of a challenge. So it's been a great day to get all of that done. So I admit I lived in Hawaii for, for quite a few years. And while I was there, I had uh, uh, quite a few Canadian friends and I we celebrated Canadian uh, Thanksgiving there for quite a few years when I was there. And so, oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, this is a great time of year. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm American myself. So I always, uh, I always have to remember that my family's all having turkey dinner tomorrow. So yeah, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> although my turkey was months ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, we'll officially start your interview in a moment, Derek. Uh, but before that, I have to ask, have you ever done any uh, diving in the south of France? Uh, no. And if you need a translation, since I was speaking French, no, I have not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that's perfect. We we may need somebody's. You were talking about uh, doing uh, voiceovers. We may need someone to dub this movie that I'm talking about. So we'll we'll keep your name. Uh, we'll pass nice. it along. Perfect. Uh, in <laughs> Netflix in France. <laughs> Netflix in France has picked up a David M. Rosenthal film about free diving that's currently in production. Rosenthal is known for the movies A Single Shot and Janie Jones. The plot of this film is one we've actually heard many times on this podcast. So it's kind of hit hit home for us, I think, uh, from real life free divers and scuba divers. In the Deadline article, they say, quote, the film follows Roxana Aubrey, a young university student with a troubled past and a passion for the sea who decides to drop her studies and escape her life in Paris for a free diving course in the south of France. She's quickly pulled into a life that reaches new depths brought on by the weight of the ocean's descent. So this film's in production now in the south of France, and uh, they expect it to be released in 2022 in the fall. Um, But yeah, we've literally heard how many people come on this podcast and say they took a course and then it changed their life and they dropped everything and moved and they, you know, went and became an instructor or something like that. I can tell you if uh, I think if I had taken that scuba course when I was 18, I would not be living here now. So that's, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be here and I'd probably be somewhere warm. <laughs> but right. still, you know, that being said, I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. But uh, but had it happened, I can guarantee yeah. you I would not be here now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. I think the allure of freediving um, definitely lends itself to that kind of film. So it's mm. exciting to see freediving in popular media on on a, on a platform like Netflix. So looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, it's you know, all French cast, so I'm sure it'll be in French. So we'll we'll definitely need those dubs for uh, for an English speaking audience. <laughs> Anytime. And I'll tell you, you know, I oh, I was going to say, I, I I've only seen like you guys said. I've mentioned. You, you mentioned a, a lot of people I've met over the years too have, have dropped everything, sold everything to become diving instructors, especially in in tropical locales. I've only seen it ever go the other way once. Uh, we had a diver at UC when I was at the University of California at Santa Cruz teaching. We had a diver that went skydiving one weekend with a friend of hers, and the next day she sold all of her dive equipment, bought a parachute, 
and became a skydiving instructor. So Whoa. the only time I've seen it <laughs> go the transition. Other way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that is something else. But I mean, I guess I could see the appeal of that when you get right down to it. Um, different kind of rush, but uh, certainly exactly. certainly appealing. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I uh, back back home. I used to know a couple that they were skydivers, and they uh, they said they took up scuba diving, and they said because eventually you're going to have an accident skydiving. And we've done a lot of dives, so we might as well start scuba diving instead. <laughs> Good call. Little Good do call. they especially know. Especially if you have that, if you <laughs> yeah, have that <laughs> feeling. You definitely want to stop. Yeah, yeah. if you have that feeling, yeah. it's time to, ch- time to roll over and uh, roll or back roll, I guess, is the case maybe. That's right. Well, we should, uh, we should probably... <laughs> <laughs> we should probably roll into the uh, into the interview here. Is that it for the news today? It's time to dive in with Derek Smith. So, Derek, uh, can you tell us where you're from? Uh, originally, actually, I'm from uh, California, from San Francisco. Uh, my family goes uh, a ways back okay. in, in San Francisco, but um, I left there mm-hmm. uh, shortly after high school, and I ended up in Southern California for a while, and I ended up in... Uh, the Bahamas for a while. I ended up back in Southern California in, in Catalina, and then I ended up uh, in Oregon. I ended up, I've worked a lot in the Mediterranean and lived in a number of, of countries over in the Mediterranean. And then um, most recently now I'm living uh, off the coast of Washington State uh, in the town of Friday Harbor, which is on San Juan Island, which is uh, about, we're only about two or three islands over from being the most northwest point of the continental U.S., so I live on a small ferry access oh, cool. only uh, island off the coast of Washington now. I used to go up to a friend's cottage in Long Beach, Washington, and uh, ah, it was a really nice place. So the water was, seemed a little rough for diving. Well, as I say, we're on an inside protected bay, the Sailor Sea or an inland waterway. And so, so we get away with year-round mm-hmm. pretty good diving. But you're right, the outer coast of, of Vancouver Island and down through the state of Washington and the, the tip there are are some of the largest, heaviest surf in the U.S. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. But, but really pretty. Thinking back to, to all those locations, and lots of those are, are near or on the water, I guess. What's your first memory of the ocean? Um, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, like I said, and my, my parents used to take me to Half Moon Bay, uh, which is, um, you know, the, the San Francisco Peninsula is just is pretty small. It's like a little small finger that kind of sticks up. And mm-hmm. we lived on one side. And it's only about a, about 30 minutes over to the coast. And so my, my early memories, are, our earliest memories are walking on the beach uh, in Half Moon Bay, which are like big, long, expansive beaches of, of real fine sand. But we also get actually that's where the large they hold one of the largest mm-hmm. uh, surf competitions. Uh, Mavericks is, is there, the Maverick Surf. Uh, I mean, hundred foot high, you know, thirty meter high waves are are there uh, during the winter time, and so that that was kind of the beach of mm. where I called home when I was little. And so, you know, my father asked me when I was uh, not not too many years ago. My father asked me with all the time I've spent in the in the ocean and becoming a marine biologist and everything else, was there a, a single memory or was there something that that they did as parents or that I remember as a child that kind of led me down this pathway into this and. In, in addition to that, they used to take me. Used to make yeah. them take me to the California Academy of Sciences to see the fish and like all that stuff when I was little. So I've always kind of been been drawn to it. But uh, I told him, I said, no, I don't. I don't have a specific like. Like it's always been that way for me. <laughs> like I've always been at the ocean, and I've always mm, uh, yeah. been fascinated by the shoreline. I've always been fascinated to be in the water and and see what's under the water and that kind of stuff. And it's always been a kind of progression of all the way straight through to becoming a marine ecologist, PhD marine ecologist for. <laughs> and I've been doing this for 25 years. And so it's kind of just always been. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool that you get to to live the, your life connected to the ocean that way. I was I was kind of wondering what your introduction to diving was. Was it the science or the diving that came first for you? Um, the diving, well, actually, I mean, the science, I, I learned to dive at UC, at University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, when I started my undergraduate degree in marine biology. So it was largely utilitarian. Like, I mean, I learned to dive as part of, uh, of being able to use diving as a tool for conducting underwater research. But I'll, I'll tell you a funny, funny story. Shortly before that, though, I, I was living uh, not far from Santa Cruz, maybe about an hour away from Santa Cruz at the time. And I thought I had been accepted to UC Santa Cruz. And I thought that maybe it might be a good idea to get certified to dive or learn to dive properly before showing up at the university, figuring, well, hey, maybe if I already know how to dive, I'll already be, you know, like one step ahead, uh, that kind of stuff. And so um, I used to drive by this dive shop every day and uh, they had a help wanted sign up. And so about three or four months before I moved, I decided just to go ahead and stop by there and 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 see whether or not uh, I could both work and learn to dive. And I walked in the front door and not knowing right. anything about diving, I mean, nothing at all. I, I truly thought it was <laughs> as easy as put the thing in your mouth and, and breathe and go go underwater, that kind of stuff. And so I walked in the front door <laughs> and the first question they asked me was, Am, are you a certified diver? And I didn't know what to say. I mean, I had a moment of like, what do I do? I'm, I'm sure if I say no, that they're going to say, we don't have any work for you, that kind of stuff. And so I foolishly told them, granted, this was a long yeah. time ago, but I foolishly told them, I said, oh, I, my friends have taken me diving. I've been diving. Now, I, I imagine now if somebody told oh. me that, <laughs> you know, I would be like, I tell your friends, you know, don't they, they should not be taking you out diving until you're properly, you know, certified to dive, that kind of stuff. But they, of course, looked at me like I would have looked at somebody now and, and they said, I'm sorry, we don't have any work for you. And so, uh, but thankfully, like I said it was it was a good a good thing I didn't get uh, hired and, and learn to dive there because, like I said, I actually got involved with the the UC Santa Cruz program and both learned to dive, went took every class they offered, became an instructor, became a diving safety officer through the university, and and started mm -hmm. a path which was really largely towards the advancement of, of science and diving rather than than diving. But uh, I do get I get asked a lot whether or not I enjoy diving. <laughs> and I have to say, like, I don't do fun dives, mm -hmm. per se. Like, <laughs> I don't get a, a chance to really get out and like, right. and, and do so purely for fun, but partially because I can't really as a as a scientist, when I go underwater, like you, I'm sure you observe the environment and you take note of what's happening and, and stuff that makes it hard not to, to, to do something underwater. But uh, I have enjoyed every dive I have ever made. <laughs> so and I still to this day, after 4,000 plus dives, I, it has never <laughs> lost its, its mystique for me. Like, I, I love every, every breath underwater. It's, it's still magical to me. So I guess that makes me want to find out from you then, is there like a particular thing that you can do in diving then that, say, recreationally wise, takes you out of that scientific place and just kind of lets you connect with the water and forget about it and let it all slip away? Because I think, you know, for a lot of folks, they describe diving as being... Uh, an ability to disconnect from the, the I guess, the rigors of their uh, of their regular lives, and so can that happen for you? Um, you know, maybe not diving, but certainly free diving. Since you were mentioning the the free diving movie, and I know that all of you are, are passionate about free diving as well, and mm -hmm. I have to admit that is that is one of the places where I, I don't actually tend to focus on what's going on in the water, and I tend to just focus on myself and the experience of, of being in the water um, and free diving. Because right. at that point, you you've got the one breath, and so rather than like I said. Diving, I, I've never been a commercial diver per se, but I can imagine that's even weirder with the idea of just a constant supply of mm -hmm. air that never runs out. But I'm like, at least with, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> diving with a single cylinder or a couple of cylinders, like you have this feeling of, you know, that things are going to eventually you're going to have to come back to the surface. But with free diving, it's a whole different 
a whole different thing. Plus, you can get it, it, you can get it exponentially better quickly with free diving. Like, I mean, it's it's like that you can get so good. <laughs> yeah. so that, that's that's I think that's where the one place where I still feel like I can go connect with the ocean in a way that isn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, I guess when I think about that, you you have obviously this passion for diving, and you've mentioned that. Uh, you sort of pursued diving uh, towards like the advancement of say scientific diving, but you also have several, I guess, ratings in scuba and that includes an instructor uh, rating. You've got like AP diving for Naui inspiration and evolution instructor. You've got closed circuit, mixed gas rebreathers, uh, litany of <laughs> academic teaching credentials. So it might, my, my kind of, I, I guess, where I'm going with this is what is it that it inspires you to teach in general, but specifically to teach in scuba and in particular this uh, rebreather end of it? You know, it's a, it's a good question. Like we were saying about, you know, previous memories about where we were headed when, when I was in high school in the, when I graduated the senior superlatives when they talked about, you know, most likely to do this, most likely to do that. Uh, I was voted most likely to be a teacher <laughs> year after year always. And I'm like, I'm, I've always kind of been <laughs> somebody who can take difficult, concepts and turn them into fairly everyday language that people can understand and and make sense and stuff. So for me, it's part of that has always Mm. been this natural uh, desire to share. (laughs) I'm a middle child also, so I'm a sharer. I mean, in general, so I've got an older brother and a younger sister. And and like I said, so part of me is, uh, you know, somebody who's constantly seeking that, you know, like sharing the knowledge that I've gotten. So that's that's at least (laughs) part of it. It's kind of just built into me, but, um, you know, when I when I learned to be a scientific diver and a diver, I said all that happened fa- fairly quickly when I started diving. But um, when I started diving, I being able to sh- being able to share that part of what what I do underwater is something that a lot of scientists never get never get trained to do, never take classes in or anything else. The idea of actually being able to bridge that gap, and so um, it's been a part of it too. Is that the a lot of what, what I end up doing is, is I kind of figured when I when I graduated from UC Santa Cruz with a degree in marine biology, I kind of thought I would go right in towards an academic career and and become a professor and get a PhD and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I had discovered the the side of diving that was logistics and um, support of diving. And like I said, I became a diving safety officer. And next thing I know, um, a lot of that teaching and a lot of those certification stuff has, came as a necessary part of what I needed to do to be able to facilitate the work getting done at the organizations that I was employed with. So I'm like, so part of it was hmm. kind of a, a base feeling of, of somebody that felt like a teacher that's always felt good at teaching things. And part of it was out of the, the need for, I, I was oftentimes the only person who could deliver that. Like most of our organizations that are members hmm. of the American Academy of Underwater Sciences have single people that run them. I mean, with a diving control board and oversight from administrators and stuff, but it, there's largely just usually one or two people. And so those people are tasked with everything from training divers to oversight of divers to actually getting out and collecting data and doing work, that kind of stuff. And so some of it was bred out of necessity and some of it was just bred out of a kind of a core desire to share knowledge, <laughs> kind of overshare knowledge. I have to admit, my, mm. my, I've had a lot of teaching partners over the year, and my, my <laughs> teaching partner at UC Santa Cruz for many years caught me teaching uh, open water divers how to use Dow Corning 111 dielectric grease on the O-rings of <laughs> cylinder valves, like inside of where, where it connects with the cylinder valves. And he looked at me and was like, yeah. Open water divers do not need to know about Dow Corning 111, <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of like, so that's like, so part of it is an oversharing <laughs> and part of it is, like I said, out of a genuine necessity to get to be able to continue to do work. So, 
It's just a thorough education. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> I know about it, so they should know about it. <laughs> exactly. I, I agree. I totally agree. Uh, <laughs> is there a diver out there that it, that inspired you in your career? Wow. Uh, I mean, many, of course. Uh, most of them have been within our mm. community, like our scientific diving community, because like I said, I'm, mm. even though I have to admit, I'm, I mean, I'm, I was an avid watcher of, of Sea Hunt and Lloyd Bridges, and I've actually replicated mm-hmm. a couple of experiments of Jacques Cousteau's and so that. So I've got a couple of the real classic, like, oh, cool, you know, stuff that's happened. I've actually worked with uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau, and like I've gotten a chance to, to work with some people that have been heroes of mine. Even Sylvia Earle, I, I, I hope uh, the listeners know who oh. Sylvia Earle is. Her deepness. Uh, she actually came yeah. out and and yeah. joined us for a scientific diving class in Hawaii, and. I got to take her for a dive as part of our class. I counted fish with her and like, she actually dove with one of my divers in the class because that girl had written a a paper about Sylvia Earle in fourth grade. And when I told the class that that Sylvia Earle was joining us for the class and for a dive that day, one of the (laughs) divers was like, are you kidding me? And so I actually buddied the two of them up and then I kind of followed behind (laughs) them. But I'm like, so I've had, I've gotten a chance to kind of interact with some of my, my heroes and stuff. But it's funny that, like I said, the very first guy who taught me to dive at UC Mm. Santa Cruz, who, that, uh, that university actually has a fully dedicated recreational diving program and also has a scientific diving program, which is not unusual, but at least like oftentimes universities may have just scientific diving. And stuff, but California, the Santa Cruz program actually mm-hmm. did have something where you could go through and become uh, a, a certified diver and then, you know, an advanced diver and a, all the way through to an instructor and, and never have anything to do with the scientific diving program at all. But um, the ver- first guy who trained me, Steve Claybush, is... I still teach with him. He's on the board with me right now. And I'm like, he, he and I for 25 years have, we did our very first dive, just the two of us together as, as checkouts and stuff. And then I said, I taught with him for many years. And so I'm like, mm. so he, he's still my number one as far as, uh, as inspirational people. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my God, Zale Perry, I was going to no. say the list goes on and on from like Dima. Actually, I don't know if, if Justin, if you got a chance to go <laughs> back to Vegas for last week for, uh, for Dima, but, uh, I was going to say that, going and seeing some of the icons in diving and stuff and the, with the women divers hall of fame and, and stuff like that is so, so many great yeah. people in our community to, to look up to. Yeah. There, there's lots of options out there for, for people to look up to. That's for sure. I, I wanted to uh, find out a little bit about some of the other work that you do. And so you, you about the role of the board in this field? Uh, so the, the, the board is actually the certifying agency as if like the, when you become an EMT, the national registry of EMT are the ones who certify. I'm not actually on the board for the, the diving hyperbaric medical, uh, for those, I'm, I'm just a qualified, uh, hyperbaric chamber operator technician and also okay. a chamber supervisor, a chamber tender. Uh, and I've, I've, I've assisted with the, uh, um, the treatment of, of dozens and dozens of injured divers over the years. Uh, when I first actually became a, a diver, I started volunteering down at uh, the Catalina Hyperbaric Chamber and uh, out on Catalina through the University of Southern California. And um, that program has a 365 days a year, 24 hours a day staffed hyperbaric facility in one of the most heavily dove areas in the world in Southern, you know, being in Southern California. And so, um, so yeah, I have spent actually. I mean, my gosh, actually, over the last twenty-five years, I've I've gotten to work with multiple hyperbaric uh, programs, multiple hyperbaric physicians that have very different mindsets on how we treat injured divers. Uh, Dick Rutkowski out in Key Largo, um, uh, Dick Smurz out in Hawaii at Kukini Hyperbaric Chamber, uh, and then here up at uh, 
at Virginia Mason in Seattle. And so, and then also, like I said, I've, I've been an oversight of hyperbaric chambers remotely uh, the world over from, from small portable type changer, chambers in remote locations to like deck decompression chambers for commercial divers that we've modified to you for use for uh, hyperbaric treatments, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. So everything from like remote NOAA vessels through to like the living on small remote islands and, and having fully staffed and capable hyperbaric chambers. And so uh, I, I've gotten, I said, I, over the years, I've treated a number of injured divers. And I, I luckily, other than being a, a, a tender inside of the hyperbaric chamber, I've never uh, had to be treated myself, uh, thankfully. Although I guess technically I've kind of been treated in the sense that I'm, I'm in there with them. But uh, at the same time, uh, um, I have gotten to see everything from, you know, minor minor pain and, and, and injury all the way through to people that have come in in full arrest uh, and, and not made it through. And so I've seen kind of the whole spectrum of, of what can happen when we dive, whether or not we're doing things that are crazy. The very first person I ever held was a guy that just got dropped off at the dock. Mm-hmm. He had just done a 270-foot dive, you know, 80-meter dive. Uh, and his buddies needed to keep up with the dive schedule. So they just dropped him off at our dock, and they knew that there was a hyperbaric chamber there. And so I found him wandering around the the helipad down by the facility, and I said, "Hey, can I can I help you?" And he said, "There's a hyperbaric chamber here, isn't there?" And I said, "Yes, it is. It's right this way." <laughs> so, and he was actually the very first person I went in and went in with as a tender, and uh, and we treated. But um, so, like I said, I've seen everything from people that have been doing stuff that's you know pretty extreme through to a guy that had been on his very first dive ever getting checked out with just he and his instructor. They were at ten meters. He bolted to the surface and and had a massive embolism and and came in and and didn't know who he was, where he was, couldn't walk, talk, that kind of stuff. Although ten hours later, we we came out of the hyperbaric chamber and he was eating scones as if it had never happened. And so, uh, I so the hyperbaric wow. stuff has been. I, I have been glad to be involved with the hyperbaric stuff from the beginning, but it is a very strange side of of diving. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask what's it? What is it like to treat an injured diver? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you're inside of a small tube, right? And it's got these very small little windows and everybody mm-hmm. outside is like eating delicious food and like hanging out and listening to music. And the people on the <laughs> inside are doing nothing but waiting <laughs> and waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh. And so uh, I actually thought when I started treating hyperbaric, you know, or treating injured divers that I was going to really enjoy being inside and would like want to help people out because I've been a trained as an EMT and I've done lots of stuff over the years to help injured people. But I tell you, after that very first time I was in there for 10 and a half hours, I mean, I was like clawing at the little window, like, get me out of here. (laughs) And so I spent much more of my time on the outside now than I have on the inside. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, you, you got a whole range of, like I said, everything from, from people that have been doing some pretty extreme stuff to some really not extreme stuff. I've seen some really combative people who didn't want to, who didn't want to be treated. Like, I don't know. I, I've seen a lot of different, mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff with treating people. But the one thing I will say across all treatments is that people owe it. Well, save for the few people that, that came in in full arrest and then left, uh, not, not still alive. But I'm like, everybody else who has walked in there conscious or alive has left better than they showed up. And so I'm like, the, the hyperbaric treatment stuff is, I, I cannot emphasize how, how important it is to seek. If you feel like you have any problems, seek treatment. Because mm. if you get treated quickly and properly, mm. I'm like, you can, it's the difference between lifelong injury and, and complete resolution of symptoms. And so I'm like, I have seen some of the most magical things happen wow. in that chamber. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, wow. I, I was just going to ask, in terms of keeping up with those standards, this is... Uh, for the hyperbaric uh, medicine and treatment components of it, uh, is there a requirement that 
hyperbaric chambers and or technicians recertify and or have X many numbers of hours uh, per year uh, operating that equipment or running through specific scenarios? Because I imagine there are parts of the world where maybe there is a hyperbaric chamber. I mean, I would think Halifax is an example here in Nova Scotia where we may have a hyperbaric chamber, but the odds of us using it is very slim. Have a hyperbaric chamber, but the odds of us using it is very slim. Yes. <laughs> so the the standards for that involve a lot of continuing education credits, just like anything from EMTs and doctors, physicians, nurses, stuff like that all have continuing mm-hmm. education minimum uh, units that you can meet anything from usually online classes through to actual work time, stuff like that. People who are are engaged in that kind of a, uh, of a job usually get a lot of credit for stuff as they're actually working. Uh, but in this case, like I said with, with EMTs too, you're technically, you're not really, your certification may be current. And the same thing is true of like my diving medical technician stuff. My DMT may be considered current, but usually you're not considered current unless you're actively working and are, are a part of a program. Like, for many years, I was actually like either an ancillary type person or at least somebody who came in and was continually working with those various chambers. But like even right now, I'm, I'm far enough away from our what we consider to be our local chamber is actually still a helicopter right away about an hour south in Seattle. And so at Virginia Mason. And so since I don't actually I'm not on a volunteer staff for them or anything else, they wouldn't nobody would consider to me to be current as a DMT until you're actually connected to a mm. program and actually working with them. But Nobody should be letting me into their facilities right now just to work without any without any kind of a, an update or a renewal, that kind of stuff also. But um, like I said, that, that's been a, a staple of my job in many places, either because of the vicinity of the chamber and where I've been working, or it has been directly the oversight of the, of the organization I work for. Like USC had the Catalina Hyperbaric Chamber, mm-hmm. the University of Hawaii runs the Kuakini Chamber, and I worked there for many years. So like, if I'm affiliated with it, no problem. But you're right, once you step away from that, that kind of stuff is like if you don't do it every day, it's you would have to spend all the time getting mm-hmm. back in just like mm-hmm. any other technical diving or, or any other thing where you have to turn a lot of valves, mm-hmm. switches, knobs, and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you got to keep doing it over <laughs> and over. So, yeah, it's a lot. Actually, when you look at that list, like you said, the list of stuff that I have qualifications for, it's tough to keep up with all that stuff these days. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Well, speaking of other certifications you you have, you're also an advanced uh, gas blender, something you, you picked up along the way. Um, I was wondering how useful has that been for, I guess, um, some of the scientific work you've done and maybe in more remote settings? Um, actually, extremely helpful. When I, when I first got the... Um the advanced gas blending stuff was in key, the Keys, Florida Keys, uh, and it was because I was working at a remote facility out in the Bahamas. I lived on a little small island called Lee Stocking Island. Um, it was privately owned by um, a small organization in Florida, and uh, but it was heavily funded by NOAA, by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here. Like 95-plus percent of their funding or so came from the federal government to run this as a remote uh, research station in kind of pristine waters of, of, uh, the Bahamas. And we, like I said, we lived in the Exuma Keys, which was like 365 mm-hmm. islands, beautiful, pristine, uh, really, really nice, healthy coral mm-hmm. reef stands, like really, really good stuff. And mm-hmm. so, um, we, um, we had, we, the only thing we could do was everything for ourselves. There was no, like if we wanted to be able to do anything there, any kind of diving, boating, or else, we had to have everything there for ourselves. And so again, we had a hy- full hyperbaric chamber uh, that was set up because NOAA facilities, actually NOAA rules actually required that the types of diving that we were doing required an onsite chamber, uh, 
But we were, the Exuma Keys, uh, if you look at kind of a satellite image of the of the Bahamas, the Exuma Keys is a barrier set of islands where you've got a uh, thousand meters deep on one side and about one meter deep on the other side. So like the Grand Bahama Bank is all sand and really shallow on one side. And then, like I said, thousand plus. So deep mm-hmm. blue water. And it's just a single line of islands, little tiny islands that, that separates those two things. And so we had incredible diving on mm-hmm. the outside of our walls uh, where we were doing hundred plus meter mm-hmm. uh rebreathers, uh, tr- open circuit trimix, uh, that kind of stuff. And we were said we were able to do any kind of custom gas blends, uh, that kind of stuff directly right out of our facility. We had uh, helium and, and other gases shipped in, uh, brought in by uh, landing crafts, that kind of stuff, and they would deliver to us. And then we were able to do all that stuff itself. And so that was a big part of the reason why I did that. But beyond that, many of the countries that I work in in the Mediterranean, like Albania and Montenegro and Croatia and Bosnia, stuff like that, are all countries that have no no infrastructure for that kind of stuff either. So if we didn't have... We actually found a hyperbaric chamber in a cargo container that they didn't even know they had. <laughs> so stuff like that, that we're like, so being able to do those things actually for me has come in a lot, has come in handy at many times, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. And, uh, so, I mean, it sounds like you need to, uh, give us the coordinates to that, uh, site and then we'll just head on down <laughs> there and spend the rest of our time coordinates to that, uh, site. Absolutely. And then we'll just head on down there and spend the rest of our time of shipwrecks in the Hawaiian <laughs> archipelago. And it was an assessment of biodiversity. So to the regular folks like us, uh, what did you end up learning about the connection between shipwrecks and biodiversity in Hawaii? And uh, the other part is, of course, why would you ever leave Hawaii? That's, uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I get asked that a lot, actually. Um, I have mix, many mixed feelings about Hawaii. I actually, There's a lot of great, great things about Hawaii, and there's a lot of very difficult things about Hawaii. But... Uh, you know, uh, mm. one of the best things about being a marine ecologist is, and why I actually work a lot with maritime archaeologists, is because there's no yes or no answers. Like, there is no, it's all interpretation. And, like, I can collect reams of data on mm. these sites and stuff, and it's, it can be very difficult to make a, 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 not an accurate, but any kind of a real, like, this is why we think this stuff happens, like that kind of stuff. And so when it comes to shipwrecks in the Northwestern yeah. Hawaiian Islands, I'm sure everybody knows the main Hawaiian islands, you know, the big island in Maui and Lanai and and Oahu and stuff like that. But if you head northwest of that for about 1,200 nautical miles, there are a whole series of what used to be the main Hawaiian islands, which are now subducting into the ocean, uh, which are now really most of them are like coral reefs and and, and atolls that are like right at the waterline. And so um, I I said, I got to dive nearly every Mm -hmm. one of them all the way up, headed up north up to Cure, the northernmost uh, atoll in the Hawaiian Islands. And um, there are shipwrecks there that date anything from about 188, 200 years ago or so, whaling vessels from Nantucket and from um, the northeast, uh, all the way through to, well, there's contemporary stuff that shows up there, like they've had ghost sailboats and stuff that just get the year after year when the vessels go up there to do research and stuff because there's no what you can't nobody else is allowed up there like there's very few it's very difficult to attain permits and stuff they have to do some monitoring of the place but um native hawaiian groups are able to go up there uh, and do some some sacred uh, stuff that goes on up there and then also the NOAA facility our NOAA vessels are allowed to go up there uh, to do some work on some of these atolls but uh whether it's a 188 year old uh 
whaling vessel or whether it is a World War One, World War Two type uh, vessel or whether it's a sailboat that shows up on the reefs, what I can say is these things disturb the environment and they continue to disturb the environment even after what can be hundreds of years. And so mm-hmm. I, I find the same thing with shipwrecks in the Mediterranean too, where we start dating stuff back into the two, three thousand year old. And these things are still uh, disturbing the environment in some way, some ways good, some ways bad. But I'm like, there's, there's disturbance. What humans have put into the ocean for thousands and thousands of years continues to, to, to disturb and cause uh, things to happen in the ocean. And so um, I said, we actually got a chance. Like I said, I, the, the oldest thing that they've discovered there is, well, a lot of the really old stuff, like in the thousand plus years in the Hawaiian Islands is going to be organic canoes and stone anchors and stuff that's very hard to locate and identify. But all of kind of the more Western stuff, which is, like I said, anything from sailing vessels through to steamers all the way through to like warships and stuff like that are all still still out there and so i did research for my masters on about a dozen of those sites across 1200 miles and and looked at what all was there now like here i've got something from 70 years ago that crashed into this reef and what's going on there now is there more life less life more fish less fish (laughs) that kind of stuff and so we went site by site and and did assessments on all of these things to decide what happens? What happens when stuff crashes into reefs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and is it quote good or bad? That's kind of the what they want to know. So, so a little bit along those lines, you've you've done some cultural resource ecology work in, in the Mediterranean, Sicily, and Albania. Um, what is cultural resource ecology, and, and how does that kind of apply to the underwater world? Uh, good question. Um, like I said, there's, there's kind of natural resource management and cultural resource management, right? And natural resource management is in theory, all of the, the, the non-man-made stuff, anything from, you know, rocky reefs, coral reefs, um, sediment, you know, rocky bottom or sedimenty bottom, stuff like that are all areas where we would, you know, look at those things as natural resource management. And then of course, anything that is man-made or or human introduced in the ocean becomes a cultural resource issues. And so, and there are, in addition to the ocean doing different things to those, (laughs) those resources in terms of like, you know, most of the environment can handle what the, what the mother nature is throwing out of the rocks and all that stuff has been around for a long, long time. Whereas stuff that we tend to build, whether it's something organic, like a, a canoe or something like that, or whether it's a, like, so like a huge metal warship, stuff like that, but right. the way the ocean deals with that thing over time, um, they differ. But you've also got a tremendous amount of political difference. When you talk about cultural resource management, you've got a, an entire cultural as- or a, a political aspect to it that is... Um, can be very difficult to navigate. I mean, most of most of what we find, certainly whether you're in Albania or Sicily or, or France or any other place, all of those resources are really the people of that country's resource. So like if we find, you know, ancient amphoras and, and stuff like that and any kind of stone tools, like that, that's really the, the people of that country's uh, resource and, and theirs to protect. And so and then the government hopefully are being good stewards of the people and are helping protect all of that stuff. But um we found a really interesting the 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 combination of cultural resource management and natural resource management when we get biologists working with maritime archaeologists we get a much more clearer picture of kind of what happened over the long time and what's happening now and whether or not we need to do more conservation efforts like Sometimes the ocean is tearing stuff apart, and the best thing to do is take it out of the ocean to conserve it. Sometimes the best thing to do is actually leave it in place mm. and let it persist the way it has been. And so that the, the, the overlap of those two things is a burgeoning side of interdisciplinary science right now. And I kind of feel like 
in a lot of ways, the work that I get to do is kind of found this really interesting union between archaeology and ecology, where we are trying to answer the same questions, we're trying to see all the same insights and get the same types of management answers that we need about these areas. That was a really long answer. I don't know if that answered your question. Hmm. No, it did. And, and I quite like the, uh, you know, like your so. connection to the interdisciplinary work, right? Because I think often like in science-related issues or science-related like studies, we, we begin to be insular to a degree uh, and by necessity. Uh, but then you often have to step back and say, like, you know, how do we put the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together so that all these different pieces of science comes together? So, yeah, I really, uh, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that. Thank you. That's, you know, it's interesting. Most most inter interdisciplinary science over the last number of decades really just means that a bunch of scientists from different areas come together, collect the data that they want, and then leave and go do the stuff with their data that's theirs, right? <laughs> Whereas, like I said, the, the new burgeoning side of interdisciplinary science is actually to overlap data and actually ask the same questions and get the same answers and stuff. And so, like I said, in the case of archaeologists and ecologists, mm. we literally look at any given site and look about all the processes that are going on there, like all of the stuff that's happening over the years. What kind of insights can we get looking back thousands of years? Like as an ecologist, like most ecologists, marine ecologists, they might spend 30, 40 years of their career studying one site or one place to try to get some kind of, quote, long-term mm. insights into that area. But we know that the yeah. ocean and, and certainly across the entire planet, whether you're talking terrestrial or, or marine, that the cycles that you see are, are decades, hundreds of years, millennial type cycles, things that go in thousands of year cycles. And it's, for us, it's hard to get a snapshot of this with our small, like 80 year lives, you know, or even 40 years of an academic career or something like that. It's hard to get that long term snapshot. And the archaeologists have a lot better uh, perspective on that because especially ancient archaeologists that are looking back thousands of years, they have to try to make inferences about what were people thinking about during that time and why would they do the things that they did and, and that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, I, as an ecologist, the very first thing that I saw in, in off the coast of Albania was a 2,200-year-old ceramic pot. And I was supposed to be really excited about the ceramic pot. <laughs> like the archaeologist <laughs> told me. You're going to see something that nobody else has seen for 2,200 years. And I got down there, and this thing is covered in sponges, like beautiful red sponges and hydroids and corals. And I was kind of like, I came up and I said, what's all the stuff that, like, all the stuff that's on there? What do you know about all the stuff that's on that amphora? And they looked at me and were like, are you kidding? They're like, we scrape that stuff off as fast as we can. It's ruining our artifacts. <laughs> and I was kind of like, you've got thousands of years of ecological history on this thing in addition to the, the cultural history. So I'm like, you really need to see, like, you need to like let me look at this and see what's going on with what could be thousands of years of information rather than you know, weeks or decades, that kind of stuff of my life. And so uh, that's when they look down and say, mm. you're our new head biologist. And next thing I know, I'm I've spent the last, like I said, 14 years studying exactly that in the Mediterranean is how do we get thousands of year old answers out of, of stuff that's been in the ocean rather than a short period of time. That's very cool. That is really, really cool. Um, I want to ask about another thing here. Uh, we'll dive into this more after the break, but uh, you're the you're the president of the American Academy of Underwater Sciences. What led you to this position? Um, you know, I just, I just every month I have to write a president's message and I just told the funny story about how when I when I first got involved with this community, it was actually right when I became a scientific diver. Um, <laughs> shortly after I learned to dive, I became a scientific yeah. diver. And the annual symposium for the academy was at my university that year. And so I got a chance to kind of help out. Like I drove people around for to get to the different venues and, and that kind of stuff. I helped out as a student, uh, that kind of stuff. And then shortly after that, the next symposium yeah. I attended 
as like a diving safety officer, I, I ran for a board position. This was tw- almost 25 years ago, 24 years ago. And I ran for a board position and I got one vote. It was not me, but I got one vote. And I vowed that day and secretly I vowed, I said, I will be the president of this organization one day. I will transform scientific diving for the next generation, that kind of stuff. And so it took some time, yeah. <laughs> but uh, until I felt like I was ready to, to do what I wanted to do, that kind of stuff. But I, I, for me, just like what I said before about marine biology, I'm like, for me, this is since I became a scientific diver, it has been the path for me to become the leader of this community. And so uh, that's kind of where I, <laughs> that's kind of how it started and how I ended up here. <laughs> wow. So. That's really awesome. And uh, definitely looking forward to talking more about this uh, after the break. So we'll be right back with more from Derek Smith. You can leave the podcast review on Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. Remember, reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. This episode of Dive In The Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Welcome back to Dive in the Podcast. We're speaking with Derek Smith, President of the American Academy of Underwater Sciences. So Derek, what is the American Academy of Underwater Sciences? Oh, um, I mean, yeah, the American Academy of Underwater Sciences is a uh, nonprofit organization here in the U.S. dedicated to advancing and facilitating safe and productive scientific diving. Um, we were, you know, the United States, um, we have a, a government entity at the federal level called the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Uh, and while states mm. are able to make some rules of their own, they can't be any less stringent than what the federal government sets forward as workplace safety, you know, workplace environment safety. Um, And that really is any time that you've got Mm -hmm. an employer and employee relationship, the government says, hey, you have to have a safe workplace or provide a safe workplace for your people. Um, Because it didn't always used to be like that, right? Like if you look back, Mm -hmm. you know, 100 years ago or I mean, technically, even now, there's still some not some great stuff that goes on. But uh, really, though, I mean, the idea is that there, there's some level of federal oversight when it comes to employers that says, hey, you got to at least keep your people safe. Um, scientific diving in the U.S., I mean, we go hmm. back into the 1930s. The University of Miami actually had what we would consider to be the first scientific diving course in the United States where they actually called it scientific diving. And they had people in hard helmets walking into the water to count fish and, and that kind of stuff. But the real birth of scientific diving as a kind of mainstream was in the ni- early 1950s uh, with the advent of uh, open circuit scuba equipment, readily available open circuit scuba equipment. Uh, Cousteau and Gagnon, of course, made it so that I said anybody could go down and get some some old old merchandise and stuff like that and be able to get their own gear in. And so at that point, really, we saw a huge increase in in the availability of, of scientific diving uh, programs across a largely Southern California. And so. Uh, through to the 1970s or so, the scientific diving community, they kind of enjoyed their own autonomy. They 
all of the member organizations that are, you know, original organizations that were the Academy were like Scripps Institution of Oceanography and, and UC San Diego, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, all those kind of mm-hmm. uh, big universities in Southern California um, were kind of self-regulating, had their own standards, kept each other safe, that kind of stuff, had a very low incident rate in diving. But uh, in the 1970s, the the United Carp- uh, United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners uh, went to the federal government and said, hey, there needs to be a commercial diving standard and it needs to include people that are doing employee-employee relationship stuff. And so as a result of that, that would have included the scientific community. Oftentimes faculty members, students, stuff like that are, are, are a part of their universities that are being paid to do their work. So they would have fall, fallen underneath the same thing. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. that type of diving would have looked a lot more like commercial diving. And so the American Academy of Underwater Sciences was formed in 1977 to combat this idea that we don't really come from a birthplace of, of commercial diving. Like scientific diving comes from a birthplace of recreational diving. <laughs> Nearly all scientific divers were trained as mm-hmm. recreational divers at one time, enjoyed recreational diving, became scientists or needed to use uh, diving as a tool as part of science. And so like I said, we're, we're more firmly rooted on the recreational side. And so over the course of about six years, uh, there were congressional hearings and, and hearings at the federal level to decide, does scientific diving have its own back <laughs> like do we have our own our own house in order right. and and we did like i said we had hundreds of thousands of dives at that point that pointed towards a very safe community a very safe set of standards um and so that's aus has largely for the last 40 or so years has largely been a standard setting body as recognized by our federal government so like we put mm-hmm. out the standards that to train scientific divers and then for the oversight of scientific diving operations up until recently. So up until recently, we've been the mostly a standards agency, but uh, we also have membership. We do things like annual symposium, um, workshops. Uh, we facilitate all kinds of training, like that kind of stuff as an organization. But we are fast heading into being an actual scientific diving certification agency and are actually taking professional memberships now for instructors, our divers, uh, that kind of stuff, and actually becoming more of a... Of a a home for scientific diving uh, as we recognize right because up until now really all of our member organizations mm. are the ones who authorize and train their divers using our standards now we're going to say hey we want to be the ones that recognize your divers and have a registry and like a whole thing that sets up a, a much uh, a much um a structure that we think we need right now in our community so we're a lot of things right now <laughs> you, you mentioned that um the the scientific diving community you know, coming from the science background, you know, came from a sort of recreational angle and, and, but it's also not quite commercial diving. So how, how would you sort of describe scientific diving in that context? So I said, we, 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 we exist because there is an, all of scientific diving, there's an employer employer relationship, even though the types of organizations that we have have broadened from those early days, most people think of scientific diving as universities or research organizations, but we also have, since the beginning, have had everything from aquariums, consulting agencies, um, federal agencies, um, that kind of stuff that have all participated in scientific diving. And so we are born out of a need to protect people in, an, in a workplace environment. So that's one piece that sets us apart from recreational diving is that even though recreational diving does have employment also, obviously, in people who are instructors being paid by a shop or something on those lines, they're all people that have an employer-employee mm-hmm. relationship. But 
we are, like I said, our, our, our sector of, of, of occupational diving is, like I said, largely rooted in the fact that we have a, an employer-employer relationship. But then also the types of tasks, th- those hearings, six years of hearings, really where we define scientific diving or where we separate ourselves out from commercial diving is that the tasks that we do are not the tasks that are traditionally associated with commercial diving, like construction or demolition or underwater mm-hmm. explosives or stuff like that. We do stuff like counting fish and like, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, deploying equipment to measure the tides or like all that kind of stuff. It's all small tools. It's all, you know, pretty basic stuff that, that we do. And the scope of what that is, is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Like we don't ever really try to put an exact definition mm-hmm. on, Hey, you can do this. You can lift something that's, you know, this many kilos or not. And then we can call it scientific diving. We don't put any kind of regulation like that on it. We kind of just look to it as a <laughs> We know what scientific diving is when we see it, <laughs> but that's led us down an interesting path. And now our federal regulators kind of, they're asking the questions. So what are you doing? <laughs> and so we're saying, well, hey, actually, now we right. have millions of dives. We've got them all logged in a system that we're able to see, and we can actually kind of look and see what everybody's been doing over the past 50 years and say, this actually is the scope mm-hmm. of scientific diving and what our standards do to keep people safe. And so, and they believe us. Actually, the, the, our federal government—we have a tremendous working relationship with our federal government partners, and uh, they know that we do everything we can to get make sure that every single diver makes it home safe from every dive. That, that's pretty awesome. So, Gareth Locke has been sort of spearheading the, the human factors in diving movement in recent years, if you will. And in that context, you've mentioned safety uh, in the AAUS and having logged something like 2.4 million scientific dive by members since 98 with a, a DCI rate, that's a 10th of recreational diving. What, what factors would you highlight that attribute to the success? Starting with consensus standards. That's the one thing. Um, and I mean, certainly we, the other thing that we have, a, a, that we can do is we've set a standard that for many years has been a hours based standard. So the minimum standard for training scientific divers is a, is a minimum 100 hours of contact time with the scientific diving program. And so when you look at the types of things that scientific diving programs have to have in place, like our federal government says, if you're going to meet this standard or claim that you can do scientific diving with your organization, you have to have a diving control board in place, a diving safety manual in place. And if those standards don't look like AAUS standards, they're going to have a lot of questions about that. But I'm like, if you use those two things and then also add in a diving safety officer, that type of structure lends itself towards safe operations. Like there's a lot of checks and balances within that, that thing that makes it so that the divers have to be well qualified. They have to be current in what they're doing. They have to usually get oversight from those people either directly as part of their project or they've been qualified to do that on their own that kind of stuff. So I'm like in the setting that we work i said we, we have probably a tenth of the incident rate of recreational diving largely because it's the regulations are strict like we just like what people can and cannot do is limited with scientific diving even though the goal of course with scientific diving programs is always to facilitate getting research done and getting the work done so i'm like even if it's at 100 meters deep or if it's, you know, no matter what it is, we try to get the work done. But just by its very nature, the, the regulation itself is probably what keeps us safe. But when we look back at the incidents that have happened over the last 40, 50, 70 years or so in scientific diving, none that I can think of, all the top, certainly not the top of my head, but so few things happen. But nothing has been because of standards. It's always been because of an environmental situation that either couldn't have been avoided or couldn't have been predicted. Or it was 
like to bring it back around to Gareth Locke, it, it is it is human decision factors that are making people make mistakes or they're choosing to do something that gets them into trouble or the classic snowball of they should have stopped three times ago and then they kept getting further and further and deeper and deeper to the point where then something <laughs> happened and some kind of like I said, a lot of our industry, yeah. a lot of our sector, we kind of weed a lot of that out just because of the the framework that we work in. But that being said, I mean, I certainly like to point at the tremendous continuity of our of our community and the wisdom of the people that have come before us. Like we have people that were at those hearings 40 years ago that still participate in our symposia and come to our community and stuff. So I'm like a big part of, of why we have such a great track record and stuff is is largely just because of our community. That's pretty impressive. And you mentioned earlier before the break that you you wanted to be uh, president uh, to modernize scientific diving. How's that mission going? Oh, man, I really well, actually. Although it's funny, I our, our operations manager, Heather, who is uh, one of my dearest friends, and I, I she started working for, for the organization 10 years ago and has also transformed the way we do things. But uh, when I first started, I said, we're, we're going to get all this stuff done in one year. And she said, Derek, it's going to take you 10 years to get all of this stuff done. And knowing both of us knew that it was going to be somewhere in between there, that all of these things were going to happen. The things that we wanted to do for our organization uh, were going to be somewhere in between there. But uh, I re- we had a strategic planning recently, uh, a, a small meeting of us in Maine uh, recently. And um, we actually, I actually asked, I said, so it's been two years, like, We've done a lot of the things that I had that I had wanted to get done that our organization has been asking for that the leadership is all engaged in and wants to do and and how do you feel about all this and she said I'm um, this is amazing like all the stuff that's going on right now I'm, I'm this is really good stuff so I'm like I when I know that I have our operations manager behind us I know that we're in good shape <laughs> so but yeah no we're doing we're doing some amazing stuff actually even in the last week or two we're releasing stuff to our members and then we've got a symposium coming up in March where we're going to release a lot of other stuff but. Said professional memberships for our, for scientific diving instructors doesn't exist, and um, like actual registry mm-hmm. for scientific divers so that we can get rec- proper recognition. We don't even have. I mean, we don't have what the recreational community mm-hmm. has had for for generations. That you can get certified, say in in Halifax and Nova Scotia, and then go to the Great Barrier Reef and show mm-hmm. that I'm a certified diver, and they'll take me diving. That doesn't exist in in scientific diving. You can get qualified in a high-level program and be made to take all of your scientific dive stuff over again in a different program. And it's kind of like that kind of basic level of of recognition of formal prior training and stuff like that didn't really exist. It kind of does, and it works fairly well across the United States and across our organizations. But when you jump out to the international level, of course, it becomes a lot more difficult. And that's been where we've... One of the mm. things that we have done the mm. most work in and where we have, have led the way is is in our international... And, and the push to join all of our standard-setting bodies across the world, uh, scientific divers across the world. AAUS, we, we, we're not 100% sure on the actual number, but we feel like there are about 8,000 or so active scientific divers in the United States. Uh, when you combine that with Europe, when you combine that with Australia, with Canada, with Mexico, with all these other places that have real robust scientific diving in place, that number goes up into the tens of thousands. And we have been doing a lot to join our entire international scientific community in the last two years, um, including uh, creating an entire top-tier standard-setting agency <laughs> for scientific diving that is akin to what the World Recreational Scuba Training Council does for recreational diving. That's that's pretty exciting to hear because I've I've moved around a lot over the years. My background's in marine biology, and I've been trying to get 
a scientific diving cert for years. And unless you're in the program, you you don't get to yep. one. So I'll I'll be keeping an eye on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like I said, it is. Uh, and, and again, largely because it's an employer-employee thing, even across the rest of the world, most everybody considers it an occupational thing and then has some some stringent regulations that allow that. But you're right. We're Like I said, there's a lot of orphan divers across the world that move from program to program and then end up kind of orphaned and don't have a place to call home. That kind of thing. We're, we're working to change all of that. How's that struggle going with international communities? I mean, I got to <laughs> imagine it's pretty, pretty challenging uh, <laughs> just getting people to the table, let alone standardizing things. It's a, it's a wonderful dysfunctional family. So like it is, <laughs> it's just like your family, like everybody's family, yeah. but across the world and at all different time zones yeah. and with all different backgrounds and stuff. Right. And it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty entertaining. Actually, I said a lot of the folks that I've been working with, of course, are people that I've either worked with in these places and stuff like I've worked a lot in Europe and, and Canada and other places where I've, I'm working with colleagues that I've worked with for a long time. So that's, that was a good start, but we started this process about eight years ago or so myself and three others that were all, uh, either the presidents of, or the representatives of, of other organizations like the European scientific diving panel, who are kind of mm-hmm. the AUS of, of Europe and the EU. Actually, not kind of, they are the AUS of, of the EU, uh, the Canadian Association <laughs> for Underwater Science, the uh, Australians and New Zealand teams. Um, like there's, there's all these groups that we've been working with. Four of us got together to say, do you think it's possible to actually come up with a minimum training standard that everybody would recognize around the world? And that's how we started eight years ago. Um, now, actually, we're involved in uh, creating an ISO scientific, the first ever ISO sign recognized scientific diving standard. Wow. Wow. And that process, we kicked off in March uh, with like just a, a, a pre-meeting, but the first formal meeting of that that group was in uh, September. We're meeting again at the beginning of December. It can be up to three years of a process, but sometime in the next couple of years here, we will have a single recognized ISO training standard for scientific diving. So, which like I said, and, and the good news is, is that it came from us. Like it, it came from our organization that, that, that we formed called the world's uh, scientific diving training council. And it is our standard that we started with to be able to start that process. And so we're, we're confident we had already done the work to come up with a standard that wow. our organizations all felt were going to be good. And now we feel like we're going to get something that we're, we're all going to be very, yeah. uh, very proud of, and very important for our community internationally. Coming soon, we love wow, that. That's that's quite a quite a commitment, and quite a goal. So, speaking in global terms, how do you think we are doing in addressing the commitments to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources? From your standpoint, <laughs> wow, uh, that's a toughie. And I'll, I'll say, you know, when I when I started uh, in, in in academia many years ago. I was always told that scientists aren't supposed to advocate. <laughs> like, even no matter what you see, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, that once you start actually, once your narrative becomes, we're not doing enough, that kind of all of a sudden, all the science that you're doing sounds like you're kind of biased and leading it down this direction of, I'm going to get the answer that I want and to back up my, my own personal uh, biases and my beliefs and stuff, right? And so mm-hmm. it's funny because for 25 years now, I've largely considered myself to be an observer. And a, and a gatherer of data, that kind of stuff, and never been an mm-hmm. advocate. But after 25 years of what I have seen, I cannot help but say 
we everyone it's, it's going to take everyone right now we all need to get on board and advocate for something like i mean when it comes to ocean conservation like yeah. whether it's your own personal reef out in front of your house or in the bigger picture trying to get laws passed or people behind stuff i'm like it, it is time for all of us i mean the ocean is really our only saving grace on this planet it is what keeps us all well it's what keeps us healthy too but it's, it's what keeps our, the the breath of our planet mm-hmm. in some kind of like it's going to take us all at this point to, to stave off the the problems that we've created but uh um i'm optimistic i'll say i'll start by saying i'm optimistic at a lot of the science that i see coming out from like coral nurseries and the idea that we might be able to actually mitigate some of the damage that we do i mean one of the big questions i want to ask at least have been asking with the research i do even though I study a lot of stuff that's in the ocean, but it's with the goal of being able to provide better information to better bioengineer structures that are going into the ocean in the future. Like mm. there's ho- underwater hotels mm. going in. I mean, if it gets too hot at the surface and we're going to need to build up one of the most simplest places we could do that is in the water. Right. And so I'm like, whether we start building stuff, it would be really great mm. to have that actually become a part of the environment, a living part of the environment rather than, you know, just basically mechanically engineered the way we do stuff now and so uh a lot of the research i do is aiming to get at that could we do that and could we mitigate these situations and could we actually put stuff in the ocean that does what we want it to do but i tell you there's there's so many people on this planet now it's just getting everybody behind one thing at this point (laughs) i don't know i don't know i'm i'm there's a part of me that's torn. I feel like I'm an eternal optimist. So I feel like I'm, I'm always going to keep trying to document and right. fight and that kind of stuff. But I'm also like, oh, I see so much devastation and I see so much carelessness and I see mm. so many people who would just think it's over and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's very sad to see a lot of what goes on in the ocean right now. So I, I don't, to answer your question, I don't mm. think we have been very good stewards of the ocean as of late. Not necessarily divers. I was going to say divers. I feel like I've I've told many people along the thing, just like actually, just like the skydiving. I mean, I've been skydiving before. You never look up at the sky the same way again when you leap out of a plane and fall through it, right? Like you just can't help but <laughs> know what happens when you mm. do that, right? And I feel like the same thing is true of the surface of the ocean. Like so many people see the surface of the ocean as this barrier to everything that's going on underneath it. Like you may watch animal planet or mm-hmm. the ocean or along those up to kind of see that stuff but until you actually go down and see it with your own eyes it's so hard to want to be able to protect that and i want to say i see the the damage that's going on here like in some of these countries i i get to dive in like i said and it's not even their fault in a lot of ways like albanians are not they are not people who throw trash in their ocean all the time but they end up with a lot of trash there that gets brought in by currents that kind of stuff and until they see what's going on underneath the surface, they're probably mm. not going to take a strong a stance. And I feel like it's this true of everybody. Like until you see it for yourself, it's just so hard mm-hmm. to to take to get up in arms and get angry about this kind of stuff. But uh, and I feel like divers, of course, are it's be hard, you'd be hard pressed to find mm-hmm. a diver who isn't isn't doing something <laughs> to to try to get people to understand that this this is an area that we need to to work on. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we've uh, we've definitely talked to some people and connecting people who are generally disconnected with the water at a especially at an early age uh, seems to be a thing a lot of people are working on and uh, especially in the Caribbean and such it seems like it's a, a super good way to do to start to attain those goals. I mean, island nations 
holy mackerel. <laughs> I said, including some that are just disappearing because of sea level rise entirely. But I'm like, island nations mm-hmm. in general are have the, are going to lose out fastest when it comes to our, our limited actions in saving the oceans and, and our planet is. So, and certainly here, I live on a small island as well. And it's the same problems everywhere with when it comes to islands, we get hit hardest and first when it comes to this kind of stuff. That's actually why one thing I will say about Hawaii, even though I love the natural beauty of Hawaii and stuff, I have to admit is as an ecologist, it is one of the least biodiverse places on the planet, largely just because evolutionary time, it hasn't had enough time out there by itself to accumulate a lot of the stuff that you see in other places. Right. So in some ways, the coral reefs there were kind of boring. I'm definitely like you all, I bet. I'm, I'm much more of a temperate ecologist. <laughs> I like kelp forests and I like rocky reefs and I like, you know, some big colorful mm. anemones and stuff like that that you just don't get in Hawaii. But uh, that was a big part. The water was warm, but what was in the water was not always the, the prettiest and the nicest. And Hawaii as a state has not <laughs> done much to combat the constant parade of tourists and the, and the money that comes their way and stuff is... It's, it's it's to the degradation of their reefs mm-hmm, and their sure. lands and yeah. stuff like that. They have let tourists come and, and do stuff. And it, it was one mm-hmm. of the hardest things about being there was to see what goes I mean, this place is out in the middle of nowhere, you know, thousands of miles from anywhere. I went to Midway Beach, Midway Beach. I said one of the most remote places. I mean, granted, there is actually an airfield there. It used to be a, a military base and is now a, a part of the park service and stuff. But I'm like, you go walk out on the beach there. I mean, it is out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And you cannot, not a, there isn't a, more than a few centimeters of, of between pieces of trash. I mean, fluorescent light bulbs, toothbrushes, okay. you name it. It's all there. And it's just kind of like that kind of stuff. It's hard to combat that in your own brain to keep an optimistic stance when you see the kind of stuff that we've done. It's, it's tough. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic because I always think back to my dives in Southern California on the Catalina Islands. And you're talking about the bar biodiversity and the the big beautiful colors and everything and that uh not not even on tropical reefs there obviously just colder or temperate water i guess and man i i really always want to head back there people who listen to this podcast uh regularly have probably heard me go on and on about this many times but uh so awesome there if there were one place that i if i could only pick one place that i could dive the rest of my life it would definitely be catalina there is not not even a, a, a thought mm. in my mind. So the west end of Catalina is is the most stunning place on the wow. planet underwater. Just great. Yeah. I do miss it very much. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think we all, everyone who's dives there is, or has dove there has uh, misses it now, I think. Um, That's right. But where can people find find you or the AUSS on social media if they're interested in learning more about uh, about the things you and uh, they are doing. Oh, certainly. So, I mean, of course, AUS.org uh, is the, is a one-stop shop right now to find out at least uh, everything about the organization, get involved. Uh, all of our membership is listed there. Um, we certainly, even though we, we encourage mm-hmm. certainly active scientific divers and, and support staff and organizations that are engaging in scientific diving to find us if they have not already. But uh even family members, you know, <laughs> my mother, people like that are all, are all welcome to join in terms of supporting our organization, certainly. So, um, but we also, of course, have yeah. a presence on Facebook and on Instagram as well. Um, it's pretty easy to find us. If AAUS is not too many things. I feel like I've at least seen a few other acronyms that, a, that <laughs> use AAUS now that I can think about it. But uh, um, no, we're, we're pretty easy to find that way. We don't, we don't actually 
spend a tremendous amount of time on social media. <laughs> it's like I said, it's funny, and it's largely too. Again, yeah. like I mentioned, we're we exist largely because of our the 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 sector of our industry requires us to be able to do this if we want to meet federal guidelines. And so I'm like, I said in, in a large way, but we're mm-hmm. we're actually I said we're we're attempting to kind of jumpstart that culture change to get people excited about being part of our community because we, we know we have an awesome and strong community but we actually want all the 8,000 scientific divers and everybody else yeah. to know that as well and so we mm-hmm. that's one of the things we recently talked about is how do we do that how do we have a stronger social media presence podcast that kind of stuff and so maybe i can chat with you guys about mm. uh, how, how to broaden that scope for us but uh, <laughs> there we go. right now i said we largely exist as an entity that is like i said people when people need to find us they find us <laughs> so because said we're that's what we do is take care right. of uh, <laughs> occupational scientific diving and so i'm like eventually if you need us you find us but uh, that being yeah. said if you look across the scope of what our divers do and what our programs do it is i mean we cover pretty much every ocean discipline that exists and so i'm like we're the stories and the and the research mm. work and the amount of money that we bring in in terms of like or that we facilitate in research and stuff like that is 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 stupefying. Like we do a tremendous amount and we've been very bad at highlighting our own existence. <laughs> so, oh, that definitely sounds like uh, sounds like it could be a thing where as you come up with those strategies, you you keep us in the loop and uh, we maybe ho- hopefully can get you back on to chat about some of those uh, pr- uh, steps or changes that you're you're making in the right direction. Anytime. Actually, I jumped at the chance when our operations manager sent this out to the board and I said, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I said, I love all that we're doing right now. It's very exciting to me. I, I, my, my small daughters have probably heard more about scientific diving than they need to uh, for their short lives <laughs> so far. <laughs> but, uh, and like you said, Justin, I, I, will, I will say too, I, I wouldn't have had daughters if I wasn't an optimistic person when it comes to the future of our planet and our society and stuff. And I think this pandemic mm. has certainly led me, I feel actually it's given me the hope rather than the despair when it comes to this stuff. I actually, I feel like the world, for all the craziness mm. that's going on right now, there are more glimmers of hope and more people doing amazing things in this time than people not doing amazing things in this time. And I can mm. say that even coming from the U.S., where people are probably doing some of the dumbest stuff in the world right now, or coming from the United States. <laughs> so I'm like, but I still am completely on the side of like, we got this. Like we're gonna, we're gonna, whether it's diving or scientific diving or our world society, we're gonna, we're gonna make mm. it through. So very great. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great uh, outlook, and I can tell you. Uh, if your daughters are are excited about the scientific diving components of it, uh, just at the beginning of the show here, uh, I had my daughter sitting next to me and she said, you know, uh, who, who are you uh, interviewing, daddy? And of course, the name means means nothing to her. She's 10. Uh, and I say to her, well, it's Derek. And, you know, so she wants to know, well, who's this who's this Derek guy? And all I had to say was, oh, he's a, he's a marine biologist. And the eyes on her just lit up like she was like, oh, my goodness. And so she was quite stoked at the idea that uh, that we were interviewing a marine biologist because she has uh, designs on the same uh, same sort of field. So I hope that that carries on as she gets older. And, you know, it gives me that same kind of hope for the future uh, that you're talking about there. But before we go, uh, Derek, I wanted to ask you, what keeps you diving? Oh, actually, you know, like I said at the beginning, I have to admit, even breathing underwater, I still get excited about breathing underwater, <laughs> like as dorky as that is, even actually with rebreathers and stuff too, but I'm kind of like, I, I still get really excited about the diving part of diving. But uh, whew, what keeps me diving? Hmm. I don't know. In some ways, I feel like diving is life. Like, I can't even, I, I just, part of what keeps me diving is I, I can't imagine not diving. 
<laughs> like, I mean, I, I've lived in my sailboat under, yeah. under the waterline before, and sometimes that is not close enough to, to being in the water for me. So I'm like, because diving, of course, is only a, a fairly <laughs> shortish period of time, but I'm like, I said, I've lived underneath the surface of the water, not in it, and it's not close enough. And so I'm kind of like, I don't know. I just can't imagine not diving. That's what keeps me diving. Uh, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So I guess not even a submarine is going to cut it. Eh? You've got to be connected uh, to that water physically. <laughs> I have done some sub dives and I can't tell you how much I want to claw my way out those little windows. And like, I, I do, I'm terrible. I said, I'm, I'm going to call, I'm a classic it's like being, ecologist. It's like being like, inside a chamber. To, yeah. I'm like, sometimes I need to touch something or I need to get my hands on it. Or I need to like, and there's a big push right now that says that we can do a lot more remote sensing. We can do a lot with cameras. We can do a lot with ROVs, that kind of stuff. But I'm kind of like, I, I, you got to be there. Like in a lot of ways, sometimes the, even though humans are terrible at intuition, like as a, as a pattern driven ecologist, I can tell you some of the dumbest <laughs> things we have ever done is because we think we know what's going on. Right. But I'm like, yeah, I just, nothing will replace mm. our crazy brains being in some of these places and seeing some of the things that we all see. You all have seen it. So, you know, I'm like, Derek it has been an awesome, awesome hour chatting with you. I've had so much fun. You are uh, so animated and passionate about everything you do. It's, uh, it is great. We've had, uh, we were just chatting here as we were, as we we're getting the show wrapped up that, uh, man, everybody, uh, everybody had such a great time and, uh, really enjoyed chatting with you tonight. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. And, uh, we definitely want to get you back on again in the future to keep talking. I'd love to. I've listened. I've, this, is, this has been quite nice. So yeah, quite nice. It's great. I've got a, a good <laughs> friend up uh, your way uh, named Graham Nickerson, who's a remote sensing expert. Uh, and I was gonna say, I've been meaning to make it up to Nova Scotia for a long time. <laughs> so. I'll have to come visit. Huh. Well, now you well, got your, uh, well, I guess four, four or five friends now because we got four of us plus Graham. So that's five reasons. That's right. That's yeah. right. That was a really awesome chat. Uh, thank you for that. First up tonight is gearing up and let's head over to Justin. All right. Well, some time ago and the way uh, things worked out, it's been a minute since my last gearing up segment. But some time ago, I promised everybody some uh, some winter upgrades. And uh, I've got three things picked out to chat about things that uh, you can do yourself uh, or uh, you can have a dive shop help you out. People who dive dry probably know about all these things, but uh, maybe have some of them. But I just wanted to hit on it to share some stuff because I remember uh, diving in some of the more like middling temperature areas like uh, dry suit was just a thing some people wore you know, who got too cold to wear a wetsuit, you know? And, uh, whereas I think here and where I live now in Nova Scotia, a lot of people dive dry cause they can't imagine wearing a wetsuit, you know? So it's a, like a different thing. So I picked out three, uh, I had picked out three things that I thought were nice, easy upgrades that, uh, you may be able to do yourself or you may be able to have a dive shop help you out if you're not up for, uh, for a little bit of fun. Uh, one easy upgrade for winter, uh, that you may not have already on your dry suit is dry gloves. Talked about dry gloves in detail uh, earlier on in dry suit uh, segment, but I just want to point out that a lot of dry glove options have a modular option that you can mount to your existing seal. So if you have a dry suit and you don't have dry gloves on already, don't don't worry about it. You can upgrade without any glue and without any fuss, and you just you can mount these things right onto the latex seal, and then you get nice dry hands. Uh, just watch out for those O-rings and watch out for snags in the uh, in the sealing system. Otherwise, your nice warm hands will be nice cold hands. And 
I give you a word of advice. If you dive in cold water and you got your liner wet and you think you can muscle through that dive, don't do it. Uh, you will have a miserable time. Change. That's why I always carry extra liners. If I have, if I ever get wet liners, I will get out of the water and change my liners before starting the dive. Maybe even my dry glove if they, if it got wet. So keep that in mind. Um, there's also you can also glue them on. Um, I say that's a little bit more risky of a thing to do on your own. I uh, wouldn't probably suggest it. Take that to your dive shop and uh, do that. Um, another thing people talk about uh, is. Uh, is long dives and uh, and one of the things, especially in the winter, you're cold. You drink a coffee on the way to the dive site, and then all of a sudden, 20 minutes into that dive, you're like, "Hmm, I got to pee." Uh, so, pee valves are one of those things that some divers swear by and some by divers swear about. Uh, and I would just want to kind of give you a couple options here. Um, they're actually not that hard to install. You can install one yourself. Um, with a lot of them without any glue they just literally screw together but it does involve you putting a hole in your dry suit so keep that in mind uh, that you may make your dry suit a disaster if you mess this up but there's lots of youtube tutorials out there and uh, if i can do it you can do it Uh, (laughs) but uh, if i can do it i worked at a dive shop for a number of years you can take it to a dive shop and have them do it for you as well Um, so getting the p-valve in your suit isn't necessarily the the most challenging thing uh men get off really easy on the other side of this and because we just wear an external catheter it hooks up uh, as you might imagine and you just plug a little tube into the valve women on the other hand is not easy to use a p valve because you have to use the little sheep attachment and it usually involves glue of a sort and uh yeah it's just a whole production as my friend used to say um, so it might not be an equal opportunity thing. Uh, worst case scenario, there is another option. Adult diapers. Whoa. whoa you know, I, whoa. I wouldn't say I have, I would do it, but you know, if you're, if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're going for a long dive or you've got a deco obligation and you don't have a P valve, it might be, might be worth the, uh, the embarrassment of putting that on, uh, just in case you, you really need it. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> P valves are one of those things. There's a lot of spirited debate around them. So, uh, I'd like to hear, hear your opinion. Uh, and the other thing is, is what can you do to stay warmer? Well, every season there's more and more electric warming undergarments coming out, uh, from big manufacturers, from small manufacturers, from brands we've never heard of. Um, and, that's cool. And they're also getting less expensive with it, which is cool. I guess cool is not what you're looking for. You're looking for warm. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> Dad joke. But, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but Nick has pointed out on many occasions, um, having an internally placed battery is not something that a lot of people are happy to do, uh, especially with, you know, questionable electronics, um, having, you know, having a lithium battery inside your dry suit. Um, it may be something that doesn't bother you at all. Uh, it may be something that bothers you completely. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to to share. Externally placed battery systems make a lot of sense. Generally, there's a much higher cost involved. You have to swap out your your inflator valve or something to to get those hooked up. Um, you know, and the and there's some there's some other options out there, but generally, like I said, involve a bit of a higher cost. And like I also said, I'm not here to tell anyone the right answer, but make sure. Before you go off and buy a heated undergarment, you 
um, you make an informed decision. Also, it bears mentioning that Dr. Neil Pollock talked about heated undergarments and deco obligations in episode 34. So go check that out too, because that is definitely worth a listen. There's a lot more ways you can do this, but we're limited on time and this is already a long episode. So uh, I do want to hear your hints, tips, tricks. What was the best investment you made for your dry suit or wetsuit or whatever? It's winter. What are you doing to stay warm? Shoot us a message. Dive in dot the podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. Dive in pod uh, wherever your socials are mediated. I will add a pop-up ice diving tent for changing Pop. in the winter. Ooh. Ooh. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a good call. Yeah, yeah, and those things have dropped in price significantly. Did um, I say I've ice seen diving? them on sale for ice fishing. Ice fishing. Ice I, fishing. I, I knew what you're talking about. Those reinforced ones that can stand up to wind, they usually look um, geometric. They kind of mm-hmm. pop up mm-hmm. and there's lots of sharp edges on them. Uh, those things have gotten super cheap recently. I saw one on sale uh, this summer at Canadian Tire for like 200 bucks. It was, uh, you know, they used to be significantly more. So definitely worth the worth the investment. That's a good thought. I didn't even think about out of the water, Nick. You're, you're Nick, bringing in the left field in if you idea. want to stay warm, awesome. you got to go ahead and warm, right? <laughs> you got to start warm. That's, you know, that's a super valid point. Uh, something more than coffee. All right. Well, uh, Amit, I hear we're talking about butts. Yeah. I mean, like, why not talk about butts? It's a thing that people like to do. So in this case, though, we're keeping it professional. Uh, we're oh. talking about butt plates today on <laughs> side mounts. So uh, I will say in many parts of the world, this is a thing that uh, is well known as far as divers are concerned who uh, run around in this <laughs> side mount configuration. They're sometimes mm-hmm. also called beaver tails, and I imagine there's probably mm-hmm. other names that I'm just unaware of. So essentially, a butt plate is an attachment that you add to your side mount harness that has a set of rails on either side. It extends from the bottom of the harness and partially covers your butt, hence the innovative name. So in many <laughs> cases, uh, these are used primarily in cold water diving as a means of attaching heavier steel cylinders that may be required for longer deep dives. And then there are some systems out there, like say the, uh, the Hollis SMS lines, where they have them built in. And then there are harnesses like my X-Deep uh, harness that the butt plate actually is just an accessory that you have the ability of bolting on or taking off. So some folks like them, others don't. Uh, I've used them and I can say that the majority of my dives are in cold water uh, and I do use those big, heavy, uh, high pressure steel 100s on deeper dives. But up to now, I've actually found that I'm not the biggest fan of them and I've kind of stayed away from uh, from having one of those on because I don't really find that there's there's a need and, and a couple of easy mods on my harness, uh, I'm able to deal with those big, heavy tanks without any significant problems. So that said, mm-hmm. There could be a definitive benefit uh, if you were diving super long cylinders. So, you know, if you think that your dives are going to require 120s or, God forbid, 130s that you're going to throw <laughs> on inside mount, uh, you might actually want to consider these or you might actually, you know, choose to go down that road. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I, I guess I see some advantage in the real estate that it gives for clipping off accessories. So if you're, if you're on a deeper tech dive or something, uh, and you need to have multiple reels or larger reels and lift bags with you uh, that are required for your dive, um, you know, it could serve a really good purpose there. So uh, again, just wanted to bring it out there as a point of discussion. Like Justin said, I don't want to say whether you should or you shouldn't have one. In my case, I haven't found a need for me to strap that old beaver tail on. 
but I'd love to hear what our listeners are thinking about this and maybe uh, what are your guys' opinions here, co-hosts? Um, my, my initial thought kind of went to, to rebreathers and I know that's kind of more of a backman thing, but one of the, the advantages you have there is you have a bit of an extension to the bottom of the rebreather so you can clip on, clip on those bailouts. But, uh, one of the advantages you get from that is also additional sort of like lumber support, if you will. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering whether, cause I've had some issues with lower back pain sometimes wearing, um, my side mount configuration, um, and I'm, I don't know if that's the weight or just the way it just sits on my back. So I'm wondering if people have maybe lower back pain, maybe having a butt plate that kind of extends that uh, that length and and sort of spreads out that load a little bit might be might be a way to mitigate that. I know on the Revo CCR, there's actually like, if you will, a, a thing that drops down at the back of the rebreather that's not exactly like a butt plate. It's more like a back plate and actually helps um, spread that that weight out and makes it way more comfortable. So I was just wondering if any sideman divers out there maybe had some thoughts on on that aspect of it. Most of my diving, and I'm sure I'll get some crap for this, but uh, it's been with the Hollis uh, Hollis setups. And um, what are you going to do? Uh, you're wrong with the one that brought you. I never really had any back uh, back issues, but it also has the built in um, built in butt plate attachments, I guess you would call it, and uh, you know the hardware because the the plate extends so low. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that makes sense just from a standpoint of the, where those were designed being like Florida cave and probably long lines and and all that jazz. So having all that stuff on there all the time is probably, probably makes sense for those. Whereas, you know, some other configurations born out of a different mindset, maybe anyway, I'm just going off on a tangent there, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'd probably be happy either way. I don't think they're. I don't think I found all that attachment point ever to be super duper necessary. So, uh, so yeah, I would, uh, I'd say it's, yeah. I think I'd like to hear other people's opinions too. Yeah. Well, hopefully some of our fans want to throw us a message and uh, let us know what their thoughts are on that. Definitely happy to hear it. And in case you forgot, dive in dot the podcast at gmail.com or at dive in pod on uh, Facebook or Instagram and toying around with Twitter. Anyone use Twitter? I basically I stopped using it. Instagram and Facebook, so I've spent a lot more time on Twitter <laughs> to fill in that void in my life. Um, <laughs> so if anybody listening to this podcast uses Twitter and think we should have a dive-in pod on on Twitter, let me know and maybe well, maybe I'll make All right. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Derek again for joining us. It was super awesome. Had a fun time chatting with him. And uh, I also want to thank Nick. Uh, thanks for setting up that interview. It's been a pleasure. I want to. I do want to thank uh, Derek for coming on. Awesome kind of diving into that whole world of scientific diving and his energy and sort of um, everything he has to offer from there, all these his stories. But also thanks mm-hmm. to Mitt for kind of setting up the actual questions and everything. Getting ahead of the ball on that this week. Really appreciate that, Mitt. Oh yeah, happy to happy to be here, and uh, like I said, uh, you know, <laughs> talk to some folks. And, and Derek was definitely I'm glad you're happy to be here. <laughs> of course, I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah, actually, like Derek just made it so much easier to be here, frankly, because uh, he he was he was one, another one of our our guests here that we've had on the show where you're just like, wow, this guy's fantastic. You know, that passion does really make you think. Like, there's so many like minded people out there mm-hmm. that's doing like amazing things uh, in the diving world, and so yeah. This is awesome. 
Yeah, and we uh, we also hope April gets some power back. She's been off this episode, as you probably noticed. Uh, she got home after a long day at work to find she had no power and no power uh, uh, anywhere in her neighborhood. So she's sitting in the dark, I don't know, probably scrolling Instagram or something. So, yeah. April, good luck. Um, don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash dive in pod and get some fun rewards for doing so. You can visit our website, diveinpod.com for all the links you need episodes merch and so much more on social media you can follow me at i dive okay april is at april weikert i'm at nicholas winkler photography next week we speak to sherry ferguson sherry is the director of the environmental medicine and physiology unit at simon fraser university this episode of dive in the podcast was brought to you by our sponsor torpedo ray scuba thanks for listening all the way